are in the seventh and final week of uh, Pillow Talk, where we've been going through the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, depending on your translation. And uh, if you remember the first week, we were introduced to Solomon, and as he was surveying his kingdom, uh, he uh, came in contact with a beautiful young woman working in the fields, and they fell in love. And we've got to watch their relationship grow. We uh, got to see uh, how they handled being sexually tempted uh, uh, and attracted to one another. Uh, we we uh, got to see their marriage. We got to see that their, their love, both emotional and, and physical, uh, come into full bloom. And then we saw problems come in and we saw them separate and then come back together. And today we uh, get to kind of look back and and see uh, really how it how it began again and and uh, how what were the foundations of this relationship and uh, so if you turn to your uh, in your Bibles the Song of Solomon or Song of Songs chapter eight uh, in verse five I'm going to read the scripture and uh, then we will dive right into it so. Starting out with the young women of Jerusalem, their voice, they say this, Who is this sweeping in from the desert, leaning on her lover? Then the young woman says, I aroused you under the apple tree, where your mother gave you birth, where in great pain she delivered you. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death, its jealousy as enduring as the grave. Love flashes like fire, the brightest kind of flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can rivers drown it. If a man tries to buy love with all his wealth, his offer would be utterly scorned. Then we hear the young women's brother's voice. We have a little sister, still too young to have breasts. What will we do for our sister if someone asks to marry her? If she is a virgin like a wall, we will protect her with a silver tower. But if she is promiscuous like a swinging door, we will block her door with a cedar bar. And then the young woman in her voice responds, I was a virgin, like a wall. My breasts are like towers, which conjures up some weird imagery. When my lover looks at me, he delights with what he sees. Solomon has a vineyard at Balhaman, which he leases out to tenant farmers. Each of them pays a thousand pieces of silver for harvesting its fruit. But my vineyard is mine to give, and Solomon need not pay a thousand pieces of silver, but I will give two hundred pieces to those who care for its vines. Then the young man, oh, my darling, lingering in the gardens, your companions are fortunate to hear your voice. Let me hear it too. And then finally the young woman, come away, my love, be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountain of spices. Let's pray. 
Dear God, I just pray that you'll open up our hearts and our minds that uh, as we look at your scripture, look at this uh, poem that you have given us, that we will be challenged, that we will be inspired, that we will be moved closer to your heart and mind on what marriage and relationship should be. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, right up at the top, the young women of Jerusalem echo a phrase that was given to us earlier on in Song of Songs, and that is, who is sweeping in from the desert, leaning on her lover? We have this this image of, of the desert, and in the ancient Near East, in the desert is a very real thing and a very barren thing. But even more so for the Israelites, the desert has significant meaning. You see, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. And when the desert is spoken about, they think about the 40 years that they wandered the desert with Moses, wandering around and around before they came to the promised land. And it is a time of desolation and, and, and pain and of exile. And we have this beautiful imagery of, of this couple coming out of the desert, leaning on one another supporting one another. You know, so often when we enter into marriage and relationships, uh, we are so optimistic. I've talked about how when I do weddings and I, and I look at the two, you know, lovers sitting there and they're exchanging their vows and in the vows, you know, there's these things for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, for sickness or in health. All of these kind of things. But they're not listening. I guarantee you. They're, they're blinded by this infatuation and just think it's always going to be great. It's always going to be sex and caviar. But it, when we get into a relationship, the reality is in every single relationship, there's going to be those desert times. When you see marriages that have been together for 40, 50, 60 years, these marriages are not ones that are absent from conflict, but they're ones who have learned through those conflicts. In fact, I would say if you want to have the most boring life ever, the most boring marriage ever, find someone of the opposite sex who is exactly like you and marry them. It'd be awful. Really think about it. What do you want to do tonight? See a movie. Me too. What do you want to eat? I was thinking Italian. Me too. What do you, what do you think about this political candidate? He's an idiot. Yeah, I think so. Conversations would not exist because there would be no reason for conversations. The truth is that we learn and grow and are stretched when we have conflict. The Bible says iron sharpens iron, not noodles sharpen noodles. It's just not how it works. Now, I'm not saying the opposite. Don't find someone that you argue with all the time and marry that person. That wouldn't be very good either. But, but a differing of opinions and things. You see, when you get married, there's 
So many things that you have to have conversations about. How are you going to raise your kids? How are you going to spend your money? Where are you going to go to church? What things are going to be important? And a tragedy would happen if you're the same today that you were a year or two or five or ten years ago when you got married. Hopefully your interaction with your spouse has stretched you and pushed you. But conflict happens. And I love the Bible because the Bible is so honest and open. I mean, we have this overly lovey-dovey poem that we've been reading, right? I mean, let's just be honest. I mean, there's a lot of lovey-dovey stuff in it. And that's great, but it also has a lot of realistic stuff in it that we've seen conflict. If you remember in chapter 1, her insecurity almost destroyed the relationship. What about in chapter 2, the little foxes? Remember the little foxes who were digging in the roots and, and uh, were potentially going to ruin the relationship? Or what about in chapter 5 when, they, when they, a relationship had grown to indifference and she wouldn't even bother getting out of bed to open up the door and they split up? See, a true biblical relationship is not perfect. It's not plastic. It's not the Christian equivalent of Ken and Barbie, whoever that is. No. A true biblical relationship is two people who are interacting with, in, with one another with respect and love and sharpening one another. The young woman says, I aroused you under the apple tree where your mother gave you birth, where in great pain she delivered you. Now the apple in ancient Near East poetry often represented romance and, and love. And as she looks at this, she uses this word arousal and actually for one of the first times in this book, it's not a, it's not a sexual arousal. It's, it's actually arousal of, of looking at life anew. Have you ever met somebody who introduced you into something new about the world that you didn't experience before? And how so new and how fresh it is? It could be music, it could be poetry, it could be an author, it could be a sport, it could be anything. And there's this arousal inside of you, this, this understanding, and, and your world gets a little bit larger. And she's saying, look, our romance, we arouse this in one another, and we have experienced life anew because of our love. She continues on to say, place me like a seal over your heart like a seal on your arm. And in the ancient Near East, the, the seal was symbolic of ownership. In fact, people would put their seal of something on something that was very valuable to them. And here we see another counter-cultural thing happening. You see, again, in, in the ancient Near East, culture, 
women did not do this. Women did not put their seal on the man. It was quite the opposite. But as we talked about last week, God's word's not interested or concerned with political correctness of the day. God has an eternal vision of what relationships are meant to look like. And God views a relationship as and a marriage as a partnership. And here she's stepping out and saying, look, Solomon, I want you to put my seal on your heart. Saying that I want my seal on your heart representing his thoughts, that I want our relationship, my relationship with you to influence your thoughts. And not only do I want to influence your thoughts, but I want you to put your seal, my seal on your arm. Because I want my relationship with you to influence your actions. This is an extremely bold statement for a woman to say in the ancient Near East, but it's inspired by God saying, look, this is a true partnership. And each one, as we talked about a lot last week, should influence and give themselves to the other. And then she goes on and qualifies this bold statement by saying this, For love is as strong as death. It's jealousy as enduring as the grave. Love flashes like fire, the brightest kind of flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can rivers drown it. And basically, she's qualifying this statement, this bold statement, and then she gives this discourse on the power of love. It's like a, the power to love. It was like an 80s song. The power of love. And she's saying love is as powerful and irresistible as death. This is very strong language irresistible. You, you, you often think about death as being irresistible. I, you know, you think about your spouse as being irresistible, but you don't really think about death being irresistible, but it is. I mean, try to resist it and get back to me like in 80 years. Tell me how it's working out for you. I mean, technically, it's not how we would probably use the word, but it is irresistible. You can't resist death. And she's saying love is as powerful and as irresistible as death. She also says that is it exclusive and possessive as the grave. Again, I don't know if she's goth or, or, or what, but you know, she's kind of wrapped up in this death and grave things. But you know, a grave, what, what is a grave? I mean, besides, you know, you put your dead body in it and all that kind of stuff, but, but I mean, it's pretty exclusive, right? I mean, most graves have your name on it, has your date of birth, your date of death, like, a, like some sort of saying that you want forever, like I told you I was sick or, or something, something like that, right? So, and, and this is what she's saying. She's saying, look, it's, love is exclusive and possessive as a grave. And then she goes on to say, and it's as passionate as a blazing fire. Fire consumes everything in its path. She's saying love consumes and is passionate. And then it's as invincible and persevering as water and rivers. 
And this is true of love because God is the author of love. And then there's a final statement here in this part that she says. She says, If a man tried to buy love with all his wealth, his offer would be utterly scorned. You know, love is depicted in the Song of Songs as being priceless. Something given by God. You can't buy it. Another song, Can't Buy Me Love. A little older than the 80s, the Beatles. You can't rent it, even though many have tried. No matter how much money or power you possess, you can not make someone love you. It's one of these pure things that has to be freely given. So how can love be obtained, right? How can you? Well, in the epilogue, we find out how the young woman received love. And in her brother's voice, they say, we have a little sister, too young to have breasts. What will we do for our sister if someone asks to marry her? If she is like a virgin, yet another song. Actually, it says if she is a virgin. I threw in the like a virgin. But she's like a wall. We will protect her with a silver tower. But if she is promiscuous, like a swinging door. (laughs) We will block her door with a cedar bar. Probably a good thing to do. Here we go. That that we see, even though her brothers were very harsh with her, that we saw at the beginning of this, uh, this poem. That they put her out in the field and they made her work and she got burned and all this kind of stuff. They actually did care about her well-being. And the wall here is a simile for resisting sexual advances before marriage. And a swinging door is a simile for, let's say, having relaxed morals. That's a nice 21st century way to say it, right? And then the young woman responds to this, and she says, I was a virgin, like a wall. Now my breasts are like towers. When my lover looks at me, he is delighted with what he sees. I guess that says something about Solomon, right? Solomon has a vineyard in Bahamut, which he leases out to tenant farmers. Each of them pays a thousand pieces of silver for harvesting its fruit. But my vineyard is mine to give, and Solomon needs not to pay 1,000 pieces of silver. But I will give him 200 pieces to those who care for his vines. And here, the woman is not actually talking about vines. She's using this as a metaphor of her love. If you remember, Solomon found her tending the vineyards, vineyards that he obviously owned and her brothers were leasing. And she's saying, look, I have something. I have myself, which is my vineyard. And Solomon, I'm not going to charge you. Not only am I not going to charge you, but I'm going to give. And that's the very nature of love is giving. The very nature of 
if we hear Scripture, it says, what is God? God is love. And love is giving. And God's very nature is love and giving. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son to die for our sins so we should not perish, but we can have everlasting life. Love is giving. And she doesn't have anything except her love and herself to give, and she gives it freely to Solomon. And then finally, the, we conclude in the, the whole story, the whole poem takes a full circle. Back to them, basically re-giving their commitment to one another. The young man says, Oh, my darling, lingering in the gardens, your companions are fortunate to hear your voice. Let me hear it too. You know, the voice is an interesting thing. Have you ever been around somebody who's just talking and talking and talking and you get more and more tense and you just want to say, Please just shut up. I just don't want to hear your voice anymore. Oh, yeah. Uh, of course you have. Doesn't it say something? Now that we get a snapshot of this relationship, and they've gone through the desert together, and they emerge from the desert leaning on one another, and he still thinks that people are fortunate to hear her voice, and he wants to hear it too. Because her voice represents life in words and the new perspective that he experiences. And then she concludes and says, Come away, my love, be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountain of spices. What is she doing here? She's like, look, even though Solomon, now you're old and you're fat and you've lost your hair, I still want to be with you. That you're as beautiful or handsome now as you ever were to me. You know, the Song of Songs is a beautiful picture that God has given us about His plan for sexuality and, and, and relationships. And over the past seven weeks, we've seen this countercultural message from God saying, Look, Marriage is a partnership between a man and a woman where each spouse is intently and intensively devoted to one another. To the whole being, to the heart and the mind and the soul and the strength of, of their partner. To encourage them and move them down the path. Becoming a fully devoted follower of Christ. And I just wanted to spend just a minute just talking about how we, the church, have done a disservice to those around us on how we have approached human sexuality. You see, we've reduced this, this, this beautiful gift and the way that we've talked about it to something that, that should be shunned or, or kept in the 
darkness. And I understand why we've done that because it's, a, it's kind of a response to the perversion that, that has taken place of human sexuality. But the truth is that God has given us this gift. And it is incumbent upon the church to proclaim and paint a picture of what sex can and should be for those of us around us. You see, when we boil sex down to just the mere physical act, it's very easy for us to discount it and, and, and just say, well, it's just a physical act and it really doesn't mean anything. We cheapen this gift when we do that. But when sex and sexual relations is experienced in the context of what God has envisioned, that of a married man and a woman, that they get to experience something so much deeper than just physical connection, but an emotional and spiritual connection, a, a connection that is so strong and so beautiful that those two people who are able to achieve that are going to be closer to that person and know more about that person than any other human being could ever imagine. That they actually get to experience two heartbeats beating as one. Something that no other thing in life can be offered. And I think that we who have messed this up have to be very honest about it and say, look, ladies and gentlemen, you have an opportunity to experience something that I will never be able to experience because I threw away a precious gift. But you, there's still time and you have an opportunity to experience something, the best thing that God has given man and womankind here on earth. And that is the chance to experience true, unseparated community with another human being. through physical and emotional and spiritual connection. And it is well worth the wait for something so powerful as love. Let's pray. Dear God, I just... Uh, Thank you for this book, as challenging uh, that it's been at times, as uh, bizarre as some of the analogies and metaphors and similes have been, uh, as uncomfortable as some of us maybe have, have felt. I just, uh, hopefully you, uh, you've inspired us and you've grown our relationships 
and uh, that we can be a model. Our relationships will grow to a place where other people will look to us and say, wow, your community really loves. Your community really does walk through the desert, and you do it by leaning on one another. Tell us more. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.